building full of freight. I dreamt that I was with the devil below in his great big fiery hall, where the devil was giving a ball. I checked my coat and hat and started gazing at the merry crowd who came to witness the show, and I must confess to you, there were many there I knew. Hello. At the devil's Welcome to Dispatchist, a friendly conversation about hell and some other stuff. I'm Jacob. I'm Victoria. I'm Jamin. I think we should celebrate the musicality of our voices and do that kind of one, two, three. I'm Jacob. I'm Victoria. I'm Jamin. Oh, I messed up. That's good. That's fine. That's as good as we're going to get. So this is episode 36, the St. V's Day Plague Dance. Yay. Because there's so many St. V's. There are at least two of them, and they're important. They're very important. So do you know why St. Valentine's is the patron saint of love? Uh, Because snakes. No, that's St. Patrick. Damn it. (laughs) Did it have something to do with a disease? No, that's... I mean, it actually, I think, indirectly does, but not really. No, because this is uh, the 14th of February is when the birds start fornicating. Oh, they wait that long? And the well, strong it's too cold do. beforehand. <laughs> the ones that didn't take the bird pledge. <laughs> they have little, little tiny abstinent rings on their right legs. Little footy woodies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, so birds, so it's related to birds. I thought there was also some kind of really dark story about St. Valentine that was kind of like death related or maybe he cut off his breast so that he wouldn't have to marry a gay pagan (laughs) it happens (laughs) again i know i say this a lot about a lot of holidays but i think it 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 really truly is the holiday i hate the most it's not really a holiday but it's completely fabricated and just designed to make people feel bad about stuff it's designed to make people spend money to prove their worth Mm-hmm. I think it's designed to justify an expensive trip to Sushi Ojinai. Oh, okay. Well, why do you need an occasion to celebrate? Why can't we go eat sushi right now for no fun other than the fact that it's expected? I don't need an occasion to celebrate, but I will take an occasion to celebrate. Let's go eat sushi. The end. All right. Thanks for listening <laughs> to this episode of the podcast. We'll catch you in a couple weeks. Time for dinner. So did anybody bring anything to the party? Oh, I did, but first I have to say that I just found out that St. Valentine is the patron saint of beekeepers. Oh. So, okay. Um, okay, I think I'm thinking a little differently about St. Valentine. We, do we know any beekeepers? <laughs> Gosh, I don't know. And remember, on February Insert 14th, swarm of bees. unleash the swarm of bees. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they show up as a little finger pointing right at Jamin. <laughs> so let's try this again. Did anybody bring anything to the party besides a swarm of bees? <laughs> you mean you want more? Um, I did. <laughs> I brought a drink that is officially called the tarantula, but tonight <gasps> I'm calling it the tarantella. Okay. You got excited there for a second. Can you tell me more? I about always that? make that noise. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> it's the bees. Their bees are... Have have made themselves into little tickling fingers. Uh, so the tar- the tarantella has uh, one and a half ounces of scotch, one half ounce of sweet vermouth, 
one half ounce of Benedictine and a twist of lemon peel. Mm-hmm. So do you guys know anything about the Tarantella? It's a dance. He wrote that one movie. So the Tarantella has nothing to do with tarantulas. It has more to do with the region of its origin. But Tarantism, which is also related, uh, is a psychological illness that's characterized by an extreme impulse to dance. Oh. Yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit more about this. It is prevalent or was prevalent in southern Italy from the 15th to the 17th century. And it was often believed to be uh, caused by the bite of a tarantula or a oh, spider. Interesting. Um, just a spider. So it's got its roots in ancient myths, but the dance itself, the tarantella, was both the symptom of a disease and the cure for a disease. As is so often the case. Yes. Uh So you would dance to get rid of the, cure yourself of the spider bite. I was going to say we should serve this with a spider bite too. Oh, is the spider bite also a drink? Maybe it's just a local thing. It can be. We just have, oh, is this like the whole bar story that you were telling about like, Somebody tricking newbies into drinking some. No, that was the that was the blue wave. The blue wave. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, Friend, so listener, if you ever come to Austin and you're on Sixth Street, make sure and ask for a blue wave. It's special. And also, don't go to Sixth Street. I think yeah, don't spi- go to Sixth Street. <laughs> Locally, the spider bite is served at Spider House Cafe, and it's a shot of espresso <gasps> in something that I've forgotten. That's oh. what I remember. Of. Yeah, I spent so much time at the Spider House. That's because that's why it sounded so familiar. But yeah. it's also frequently a shot of tarantula tequila in some sort of energy drink, or a fruity mixture of other things, or mm. anything, or on its own. It's mm. one shot of tarantula tequila, and then something. And something, okay. And yes. then yeah. dancing. So I think the spider. It was just like a like a depth charge, like espresso mm. in a in coffee right i'm getting distracted but the spider venom cocktail mm-hmm. has some of our old friends in it it's spiced rum tequila f- and cherry apple juice and fireball <laughs> i'll stop now. good old fireball regret in a bottle <laughs> what'd you bring jacob i brought some entertainment uh having your feet gnawed by busybodies oh my gosh <laughs> That'd be the worst. It's like every single day of every single office worker. I mean, effectively, yes, metaphorically speaking. Wow. Man, way to make it real, Jacob. (laughs) The last two years, endlessly having your feet gnawed by busybodies. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Over Zoom. It's true. It's a little harder, but, you know, it's still, it's a gnawing of a different sort. So, Jamin, how about you? Uh, I was running a little behind, so I I grabbed a bag of chicken nuggets from the freezer and brought them over. Can I borrow your microwave? <laughs> Let's just eat them cold. Yes, but it only works when the door is open. <laughs> <laughs> Can we um use them as uh, ice in our drinks? Oh, yeah. <gasps> oh, my gosh. That'd be the perfect mixed drink. Like... <laughs> For a, a chicken bite. Poor, <laughs> poor scotch. <laughs> And vermouth into a shaker with four frozen chicken nuggets, shake and strain into a glass. Strain into a glass. Yeah, it, like it chills them straight into a low ball. So you don't want the chicken. Oh, no. Let's there. use that corn liqueur. <gasps> yeah. And four frozen chicken nuggets. That makes total sense. Well, just okay. like a real shaker, the ice, you don't want the ice, you want the ice to, to chill the, 
liquor down, but then you but want not, to drain the ice but out. But not chicken it up. <laughs> this is a strainer. I don't. I'm not familiar with this technology. Is the strainer going to keep the breadcrumbs out as well, or is that part of the drink? No, the uh, breadcrumbs definitely will come through. It's a loose strainer. Good, good, good. You want that cornmeal flavor. Hmm. <laughs> you want a slurry. Corn, cornmeal and frostburn is a part of the chicken bite experience. <laughs> you, you muddle the breading in with a with a wooden muddler. Mm. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Are you okay, Jacob? Yes. Do we have any hell news? <laughs> well, I I have an interesting article that I read that's not exactly new, but it relates to what we're talking about tonight. Chicken nugget based drinks. <laughs> Strangely enough, yes. Um, it has to do with uh, Ghanaian dancing pallbearers. Have you guys heard of these? Yeah, they were turning up like I was doing some like Halloween dance mix DJ stuff, and they kept turning up in my searches, and I couldn't quite figure out why. Yes, so a couple of years ago, uh, this guy started this um, company in Ghana to provide dancing pallbearers so that, you know, funerals don't have to be so somber. So you could hire these guys to do a, to choreograph a routine to carry the coffin of your loved one. And it's a pretty impressive what they do because they, they, they roll, you know, they roll around, they, they dance. Yeah. They like, like on the ground and stuff. standing yep. up and like, it's yeah, just they've a got amazing to the left. muscles. Yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> All this while carrying a coffin. It's super cool. And um, they've suddenly become very popular again, um, not because, well, they're popular not only for what they actually do, but they've become popular as a kind of memento mori during COVID times as kind of a warning of what will happen if you aren't safe and don't get vaccinated. How traditional. Yes. So they've sort of uh, have this viral life. There are a lot of memes about them, but also... Not only just because they're super cool, but also as this kind of memento mori thing. And so one of the quotes from this article um, from the company's founder is referring to COVID protocols. Stay at home or dance with us. I feel like that's mixed messages, but I like it. (laughs) Every way they can be interpreted, I like it. Exactly. I mean, Ghana is really interesting uh, funeral-wise because it's also known for the fantasy coffins. Do you guys know about those? What? Yes, Ghanaian fantasy coffins. Is this is this like prom where it's only one night of the year, and so you you <laughs> rent the dress instead of buying the dress? No, it's better. <laughs> you rent the, you rent the coffin better. instead of buying the coffin. No, no they've got. Uh, Coffins look like battleships yep. and baby grand pianos and giant so, chickens. So it's like whatever was important to you in your life, your loved ones or you can can have a coffin made to represent that thing. So, yeah. So like you had a nice car. So you have a car, a coffin that represents your car. You were really like proud of your chicken. So you have a chicken coffin. It's there was a there's a jumbo jet. Yeah, they're super cool, like tennis shoes and all kinds of stuff. And there was a many, many years ago, there was an exhibit at the National Museum of oh. uh, Funeral History in Houston of oh. these coffins. I think they still have some in their collection, but I'm not sure. It's a National but... Museum of Funeral History in Houston? Bravo for saying that. It's, I think it's attached to a mortuary school. We need to go to Houston. We do need to go to Houston. 
Yes. And then when we, you know, when we pull into Houston, we can stop, get out of the car and say like, Houston, you have a problem. <laughs> ah, ah. Oh, she's making a joke. Ah. She's making the I'm making a joke noises. <laughs> can I interrupt with a picture of the McNuggetini? Oh, dear. Oh, Ew, what's on the rim? Barbecue sauce. And the, the drink itself is vanilla vodka and chocolate milkshake. Oh, uh, why? I, I want a savory drink with my chicken nuggets. It's ketchup. It's like a white Russian, but with a chicken nugget. What else do you put on a... Yeah, it's ketchup. That's beautiful. It's not ketchup. It's barbecue sauce. You don't put barbecue sauce on chicken nuggets. I mean, some do, but... McDonald's. But you could get that honey mustard. Honey mustard would be way better on a white Russian. Fine. Oh, ghost. Ghost. Oh, ghost. Aren't you going to go see them this month? Yes. It's a, it's at the end of the month, February. Uh, hopefully, pandemic willing. Huh. But it doesn't get canceled mm. like everything else. So. I, I, we, 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 we hope and pray for you. Thoughts and prayers. Thank you. <laughs> I have a dress and everything. Papa and Satan, a, I have Papa a non-habit and a dress. Oh. To decide between the two. You can't wear them both? I think I could maybe I could wear the habit with the dress probably that like the the what do you is there the is this called something different the head the wimple isn't it wimple wimple yeah. I've got I could wear the wimple with my dress but with the nun costume you could like wear a really elaborate faux rosary or fosery mm hmm it's true made out of uh, chicken nuggets <laughs> I even thought of that but sure. <laughs> Uh, would a drumstick crucifix be considered blasphemous or just delicious? I'm trying to imagine the logistics of that. Well, you eat the meat first and you just have yeah, the bones left. Oh, so this is very Blair Rich looking. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could use the tendons to like tie everything together. It's not blasphemy, it's full core. And and also, I mean, it's you know, it's you're using every part of the chicken, right? It's not it's not blasphemy. It's sacrilege. That's what that's the word you want. Sacrilege. Yeah. Okay. Sacrilege. 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 Okay. Whoa. whoa. <laughs> was that a callback to a previous episode? It was a callback. So they they have a a new song out this week called "Call Me Little Sunshine" that has a. Uh, Mephistopheles, a very creepy Mephistopheles in the video. Oh. And yes, he's very, very creepy. And he has, instead of a tail, he has a spade, which I did not, that looks like his tail. So tail, spade, spade, tail. The, the Satan tail is kind of like that. Yeah. I may not have caught that. So hmm. there's that. And then the album cover itself for the new album is very Crowley-esque. It's like Eddie from Iron Maiden meets Crowley. It's very Baroque. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a lot of ornamentation on that one. Tis. Tis. And Ghost, good tie-in, because they have a song that is named after one of the subjects tonight. Chicken Nuggets. <laughs> Kissing the Goat. <laughs> Dance Macabre. Oh, right, oh. right, right. Then we should, probably, we should probably start there. Okay, sure. So, uh... Dance Macabre. We talked a little bit about it last time, if I am remembering correctly. Kind of opened up the broad idea of Memento Mori a bit. We did. We did. And brought up the whole idea of the Dance Macabre. So just a little bit more, because we are talking about infernal dances as part of our Saint V Day dance plague 
so the dance macabre is um it kind of started with illustrated uh, sermon texts but the best known example of it that does not exist anymore except for a reproduction in a book is the mural at holy innocent cemetery in paris that dated from 1422 1424 to 1425 and it depicted what we understand to be the dance macabre which is a series of figures from all walks of life intermingled with skeletons and each figure is labeled as to their status and just kind of depicting that you know in the end death comes for us all death is the great equalizer so this was in a in a cemetery in paris it was it was a public meeting place. You could have, it, it was visible from, you know, all, all parts of, uh, around the cemetery. So it was very much kind of like a public work that people interacted with. So, but yeah, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, we only have a reproduction of it in a book published in 1485 by Guillaume Marchand. But another important dance macabre image that we get a lot of our understanding of the idea from is the Lubeck Dance of Death. And so there's this frieze that showed 24 nearly life-size couples that are led by a flute playing and coffin-bearing death. So each of these figures, uh, so all, again, like it showed all these figures from different walks of life, the Pope and the emperor, the mayor and the merchant, two farmers and babies uh, or children. And so the dance included, um, again, skeletons dancing, like the skeletons are kind of dancing wildly while the... Um, People are, are kind of, you know, sort of s- stiff. <laughs> but in this one, there's uh, little poems under each of the figures in low German that talks about, you know, how death is kind of the great equalizer for each of these people in the walks of, in their walks of life. So for the emperor, we have emperor, your sword won't help you, but scepter and crown are worthless here. I've taken you by the hand for you must come to my dance. Ooh, romantic. The Lubeck mm-hmm. Dance of Death is just huge. I mean, it's it is huge, huge and complex. Wait, where is this? Is this like a giant wall painting or something? It's got like 1, it's 2, 3, freeze. 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Yeah, it's a freeze. And unfortunately, 14, 15 people in it, all dancing, alternating nobleman corpse, nobleman mm-hmm. corpse, nobleman corpse. And it was, um, it was, it, it's been in several different, um, media because it had to be kind of you know redone restored uh every so often but it was finally destroyed in world war ii so we, just, we don't have it anymore hmm. so that's sad but um so do you guys want to do you know anything about dance about folk folk dances a tidbit can you give me some guidance here so do you know what a um, farandal or farandale, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Do you know what that is? I do not. So this is the dance that is depicted in depictions of the dance macabre. Can you spell that? It's uh, F-A-R-A-N-D-O-L-E. It's from Provence. It's a classic or you know, sort of a classic folk dance from Provence. So looking at Wikipedia, it looks like it's kind of a line dancey sort of jiggy thing. So people are going hand in hand, which is mm-hmm. kind of part of the the whole dance of the dead look and feel. Yeah. So uh, it's a long string of men and women. Sometimes it can be a, a, as, as many as a hundred holding on to one another by hands or by ribbons or handkerchiefs. Leader's always a bachelor. 
and he's uh, typically preceded by musicians. And so uh, with his left hand, he holds the hand of his partner and his right, he waves a flag or his handkerchief or ribbon. And that's kind of the signal for everybody to follow. Yay! And so as it uh, proceeds through the streets of the town, typically it uh, brings in more people. So it's kind of like a progressive dance. So you're gathering people or um, what is the what is the video game where you rolled a little dude to make the stars? Katamari Damacy. So it's like that. It's like the dance version of that. So, in, you know, in the Dance Macabre, it's the same kind of dance, but it's skeletons and people interspersed. And all of the people are dis- are um, arranged in a descending hierarchical order all the way, you know, again, from like the Pope on down to the poor. And so the number of characters and um, creatures within it all depend on the place of creation. So death is usually represented with a musical instrument, and he is the one who's leading the dance. So he's drawing everybody into the dance. And he, you know, again, not looking at their wealth, their their character or their rank or gender or age. Oh, He's represented mm-hmm. with a musical instrument, not represented by a musical instrument. <laughs> See, I, I was like, okay, here's the group of people, and there's an oboe at the front. What the heck? <laughs> Sorry. It's I, like the, the like Peter and the Wolf symphony that you'd always have to go to. As a yeah, did, yeah. Did y'all have to do that, too? Yes. Yes, we uh-huh. did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's just this, like... I'm going to bring the tone down a little bit with this header. Serbian anti-vaxxers revived the medieval dance macabre while the pandemic deaths rise. <laughs> folk dancing in Serbia, the COVID colo or the COVID round dance, kind of a sort of in-your-face COVID dance of the dead, defiant sort of folk dancey thing. Uh, well, that's messed up. It is messed up. I mean, yeah, definitely. We need to set the Ghani and pallbearers on them. So they're 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 protesting vaccines by. Not really protesting vaccines, just kind of in-your-facing the whole thing entirely. Like dozens of people dying in their village every day. So that is a time when the Dance of the Dead and the the Dance Macabre is very... Like, that's the moment that it was made for. Hmm. It's true, but by doing that, they're causing more deaths, potentially, right? Are they taking precautions while they're dancing? This is a a very... um, All over the place story, and I don't actually know the fine details. So you have the idea of what the dance macabre is. One of the most cinematic representations of that is, of course, the seventh seal, which we've also talked about. But another great representation of it that is entrenched in pop culture is the Disney skeleton dance from uh, it was the first. Oh, yeah. Yes. Mm. And it was the beginning of their whole Silly Symphony series. Spooky, spooky skeletons. Yes, that is Mm -hmm. very memeable. So it's, you know, a bunch of skeletons partying in a graveyard. And it was wildly popular when it came out. There's a really good quote from one of the reviews uh, from the film Daily in 1929. So here's one of the most novel cartoon subjects ever shown on a screen. Here we have a bunch of skeletons knocking out the laughs on their own bones and how. And how. (laughs) (laughs) So the dance macabre's kind of made its way into cartoons. Um, Okay, and so this is kind of like a weird little wormhole that's kind of related. 
Are you guys ready for a little detour? Are we going to digress? We're going to digress. <laughs> so put up the put up the detour sign. So I saw something about exorcisms and dance and the Black Death and like, oh, yeah, I'm interested in this. I'll and click. So I went researching and I didn't really find a good connection between those three things. However, I did find out that there's a connection between the Black Death and and vampirism or the belief that people had become vampires. Mm. I imagine with mass graves, you get a lot of like free association with death and corpse imagery. And not really knowing what happens to bodies as they deteriorate. So if you're... They ascend exceeding... into globes of light, <laughs> drift into the air. Because typically before, say, you have masses... They vanish, and the shrouds fall in, and then they appear next to you for the next three or six episodes of the series. <laughs> Wait, what? I didn't get that reference. Just a Star Wars joke. Oh. But yeah, so if you have never really engaged with a body between the stages of fresh death and skeleton... Mm-hmm. And you suddenly have to deal with all these bodies. You have to go and like make room. So you're constantly like redigging up bodies and you're seeing like, wait a minute, they moved. And it looks like their nails are growing. Hmm. And they're wearing why capes. does it look like they chewed through their own shroud? What is that black liquid coming out of all their orifices? It's a vampire. Yes. Hmm. 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 So when you're faced with a potential vampire, you shove a brick in its mouth. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, or, or in the Netherlands, a fruitcake. They st- they put a fruitcake in there. I don't. I totally made that up. Maybe like an old, like a Christmas gift fruitcake that's got kind of hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The structural fruitcake. I, I did yeah. make this up. I don't. I feel like it could work. Um, okay. So yeah. So uh, not only were bodies that happened after they were dead, they would have a rock or brick put in their mouths, but some of the symptoms of the um, plague also mimicked what was understood to be vampirism, the bleeding, the skin, you know, like white yeah. skin, all of that stuff. And so, the claws coming out yep, a little bit. Yep, yep, yep. Right. So people were also buried with stones in their mouths so that they couldn't bite their way out. Hmm. So, hmm. Um, but yeah, I never found the connection between like exorcism and the Black Death and whatnot, but I did watch some interesting videos about exorcism. Also, just another side fact about the Ferrandoli, uh, it has been used for less innocent purposes than uh, folk dancing folk rituals and um, the, the dance macabre. Um, in 1815, General Jean-Pierre Ramel the Younger was murdered at Toulouse by the infuriated populace who made use of their national dance to surround and butcher him. Oh. One, two, three, stab. One, two, three, stab. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Olé! So, as you might imagine, the dance macabre was not only, like, depicted pictorially, but it was enacted in pageants, morality plays, and at court masks. Oh, yes. It should be. Yeah. Everybody line up and dance and dress like death. 
So, I mean, it is like the Mask of the Red Death, right? Like people kind of in these morbid costumes. So it addresses corpses from various strata of society. And this also may be why costumes are worn during All Hallowtide. Mm. This is what mm. a supposition. You don't believe it. I could believe that might be part of the great mythic thread that is All okay. Hallows. Okay. I did not know this, but All Hallowtide is a period of Hallow's Eve, All Hallow's Eve, All Saints Day, and All Souls Day. I did not know that. Hmm. Oh, the whole the whole three up, yeah. The the three peat. I never heard it called All Hallows Tide. That's interesting. I I'd never heard of it before, so that was new to me. A dance macabre that's a little more modern. We talked a little bit. I know in a previous episode about Enon Chapel. Uh, oh yeah. Yes, uh-huh. this is the uh, the the dance hall of the dead sort of thing. I, I love this one as an image. This is a chapel in London, like built in the early 1800s, and their claim to fame was that it was built over like a burial pit or a mass grave from the plague. Uh, and then it became a church. That church was beset with problems of people complaining about like the fumes from the corpses and things like that. <laughs> but as it turns out, this is all complete BS, and no oh. one has been able to detect any fumes. Perhaps mm-hmm. there was an open sewer from the Thames nearby that is an awful corpse-like smell. But uh, for a while, they were advertising Enon Chapel, Dancing on the Dead. No later gentleman admitted unless wearing shoes and stockings. <laughs> so that is a good hook for a nightclub. Oh my gosh. Okay, so when we start our nightclub, this is what we're going to do. And that image, the, the picture is pretty great too, of the cutaway of the dance hall. Oh, with all the people over this like <laughs> micro thin floorboard over a bunch of coffins. How can that possibly support their weight? Well, it's fictional. That helps. Oh my gosh. So, okay, this is a little bit of a divergence, but um, one of the horror comics that I read as a kid, I read a lot of horror comics as a kid. Um, Shocker. (laughs) This pre-code. So this is, this is, this is before the trials. Like it was that, that level of gory, but there was one about this guy who worked for this skinflint, horrible guy who was cheating people out of, like he was trying to sell them crappy houses that were dangerous and, you know, it was just like, didn't care if people died because they didn't have a heat or anything. And so this guy felt bad about that. And he was in this house uh, with the guy and they're trying, the guy was telling him to sell the house, even though the floorboards were going to collapse. And he's like, but these this family has kids, you know, we can't sell them this house. He's like, you just do it or you'll lose your job, blah, blah, blah. So spoiler alert, kills the guy. The next, the next frame, you see him showing the family into the house. They're like so happy because it's so sturdy and well built. And then the cutaway shows that the dude has used the old man <laughs> to shore up the floor. So like, <laughs> the floorboards are like on his squished face. That's not structurally stable. No, it's not a very long it's a term. Really, yeah, it's not long <laughs> term. This is not a, a load bearing corpse. And really, like, did he do the family a favor here? I mean, you know, like, yeah, somebody's <laughs> gonna get somebody's gonna step in something squishy. Anywho, <laughs> <laughs> somebody's gonna step in something squishy. Dot dot dot. Let's move on. <laughs> somebody's gonna get their head kicked in tonight. Not it. So. <laughs> see you got that one so there's a lot of r- musical versions of the dance macabre uh, including the ghost song 
but some classic ones are the Totentons by Liszt, and that was based on the Gregorian chant, Dies Irae, the Day of Wrath. Did I say that correctly, Mr. Latin Man? Something like that. Okay. But turns out Liszt was fascinated by death, religion, heaven, and hell, and so he used hospitals, gambling casinos, and asylums, and prison dungeons even, to... uh, get inspiration for his work but i strongly recommend listening to this piece it's very dark that's like singing in the bathroom you get great acoustics you know mm-hmm. prison dungeons prison with their dungeons. hard walls you get this beautiful echo yeah mm-hmm. i can see i can see it being inspirational So, but the big one that everybody will recognize once you hear it is the Dance Macabre by Camille Saint Signs. I think that's how you say it. That's got lyrics. It's the no. This is the. Uh, it does not have lyrics, but it's the one you were singing the right part of it, but it has the like crazy shrieking violins and stuff. But then mm-hmm. it has the. Da, da, da. It's a tone poem. Mm-hmm. So it's a. It's a song, a symphonic song or an orchestral song that tells a story. So it's kind of like has the structure of a poem, but musical. So this tells the story of death appearing at midnight every year on Halloween, which is kind of like the Silly Symphony cartoon. He calls forth the dead from the graves to dance with him while he plays his fiddle. And so here um, in the song, it's represented by this very um, screechy violin, (laughs) which is actually pretty cool. And so the skeleton stands for him until the rooster crows at dawn and everybody goes back to their graves. So when it was first performed in um, January 24th, 1875, it was not well received. And it caused, um, supposedly it caused widespread feelings of anxiety in the audience. I would like a retraction from you. Yes. Zig 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 death rhythmically taps a tomb with his heel. Death at midnight plays a gig, tap, tap, tap on his violin. The winter wind blows, the dark night is dark, the lime trees groan aloud, white skeletons flit across the gloom, running and leaping beneath their huge shrouds. Are these lyrics from the alleged song that doesn't have lyrics? Yes. But all the all the versions of it don't that I saw don't have lyrics. Is that a later version? It is, is 18, 1872. Well, okay, so this one was performed in 1875, so maybe those were... We'll have to figure this out, because none of this... None of the performances i saw had lyrics this is a lyric deleted version it's not well known i only know this because i'm a halloween music fetishist oh okay okay so you know the lyric part i know the non-lyric part of it yes. so together we make a reese's peanut butter cup and voltron <laughs> nothing better than reese's peanut butter cups and warm chicken nuggets yes mm. So. Supposedly, you know, audiences had this adverse reaction to the, def- or the so-called deformed Dies Irae 
plain song and the horrible screeching solo violin and the use of the xylophone. Are you and sure it wasn't the screechy that. violin that just made people queasy? Yeah. But there's two, uh, well, there's one very, again, you'll recognize the song, but there's a really great cartoon from PBS that was shown in the 1980s as part of a musical education program that has this like crazy, almost sort of, um, oh, Kenneth Burns style of (laughs) film where it zooms in and out of still pictures of skeletons and dancing and death. Dance of the Dead animatic sort of thing. Yes. And then there's a 1922 film by Dudley Murphy that is also remarkable because it's kind of like the, is it Minier who did the early, the early effects in films? Malaise. We're going to talk about him soon. Okay. So yeah. So it has that kind of feel like they're trying out early um, film effects in the 1922 version of Dance Macabre by Dudley Murphy. So the song just it's used in a lot of pulp culture uh, products as well, like the Swedish Danish silent horror film Haxen, which should be on our list of something to talk about someday. It's uh, used in Jean Renoir's 1939 film The Rules of the Game. There's actually like a pantomime of the dance macabre. It's several Neil Gaiman's works, and my favorite is that. Um, displayed in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode Hush when Rupert um, describes the episode's villains, the gentlemen. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So that is a great that is a great clip if we want to share that. So I just have one more thing to say about the dance macabre. Uh-huh. And an interesting part of all this is as we move through time, it starts to have an erotic element to it. That's because the French, isn't it? Everybody's <laughs> people. Like, you know, everybody's got it. Like, there's a kink for everything, right? So in the 1922 film by Dudley Murphy, there's more of a romantic angle. Not as erotic as some later dance macabres. But in this, we start to get the idea of death in the maiden, which is another trope in art of uh, the beautiful maiden who's being kind of ravished by death. Yeah, a really kind of carpe diem-ish. Yep, 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 yep. And Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Exactly. And so uh, those images start to change over time, too, because initially the young maiden is kind of horrified by death, who's aggressively kind of manhandling her and sort of forcing himself on her. And it kind of moves from that to her being just kind of like potentially ignoring him and sort of being, you know, turning away from him to like her kind of getting into it. So there's this whole progression of this becoming a more erotic uh, imagery. This comes up in Orpheus in the Underworld. There's a line along the lines of, death isn't so bad when the god of death is in love with you. Right, and you are like connecting to the next thing I was going to say, which is this comes where there's a direct line potentially from Persephone and Hades to this whole death and maiden. Oh yes, yeah, trope. they were quite a couple. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The art would like flow together in like the pre-Raphaelite era, I'd imagine, just naturally. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so then you know, you get into all kinds of weird sort of stuff like the Goblin Market as well, <laughs> the Rossetti, Rossetti's, um, and uh, 
the Brissetti poem, The Goblin Market. Um, anywho, okay, so yeah. Um, and again, there's a famous uh, musical piece uh, called Death and the Maiden by Schubert that is worth a listen. Der Tod und das Mädchen. Yes. Mm-hmm. That could be our first album for a Berm Traum. <laughs> well, picking up on the, the mention of Millais, because I want to talk about him. Oh, wait, I think you were saying Millais all this time. No, Georges Millais. Oh. Yeah. The, the guy that did that one film with the moon with the rocket in its eye. Mm-hmm. Oh. Not just right, this, right, right. this general feeling of unwell that I've been having. <laughs> he was fairly prolific and intensely creative uh, filmmaker and special effects wizard around about 1900. There was that, a cartoon recently that was about him. What was the name of that one? Hugo. There it is. Oh, I did not realize that that was connected. Yeah, he. I think Millais is is Hugo's like weird little grandfather in the train station, and they oh, kind of hint at that. Oh, okay. But no, he was a phenomenally creative um, special effects artist working about 1900s, and about 1903, during the peak of his prowess, he released the Infernal Cakewalk, which I want to come, I want to talk about briefly, because. It was the first thing that came to my mind when we were talking about the intersection of the devil and dance was this very strange piece. So silent film era, like I said, 1903, the camera opens up onto this kind of underground grotto backdrop. And then a bunch of ladies with scarves kind of dance on doing this very high steppy kicky thing and dance off. And then a couple of demons with torches come and tumble around and they turn into six demons that tumble around. And then a line of like 10 ladies doing this strange dance where they're like, they throw their shoulders back and lead with their chest to do this kind of high steppy thing with their arms in the air, like Bride of Frankenstein. It's a little hard to imagine. I'm not doing it justice, but it's a odd little dance. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm getting it from you. Yeah. And then they bring in a cake. Satan appears, who was actually played by Malays on this cake. And he does this high stepping dance again, uh, he's got very strangely deformed kind of goatish legs, and then his body flies up, and he's dancing over here, and his legs are over here, and he's dancing, and then his arms are in front of him, and he's still dancing, and then he explodes. The end. Wait, he explodes after? Because that sounds like he, he, like what you just said sounds like him exploding. He's dismembered through dance, and then explodes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's danced his arms and his legs off. Huh. Yeah, and there's a lot of like balls of fire, will o' wisps d- darting through the scenes, and a lot of demons that are actually repurposed from the Voyage to the Moon piece. I think. I mean, it's just it's got a lot of like very fun moments in it. It's not one of his greatest works, but I like it a lot. I saw it at the Alamo Draft House one time. But the dance struck me as odd, and I was writing kind of notes to myself about this, and I said, and then they do this weird dance. I don't know, it's a gavotte or whatever. And then I looked and I said, well, no, it's probably a cakewalk. And I checked, and it was a cakewalk, in fact. And then I had to ask, what is a cakewalk? Because I didn't know. And now I know. And I've heard the this is partially true, and I've heard people argue the exact opposite as well. But National Public Radio says that the cakewalk is a musical kind of genre convention dance that led up into ragtime and kind of became ragtime early on. But it was a kind of done with a plantation slave dance and there'd be this cake prize, people would compete for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the dance, with its kind of ridiculous puffed-up chest and haughty attitude, was an imitation of the slaveholders, the white people. And 
So when I see these people coming in in the Millet's Cakewalk, which does have some African dancers in it, um, or African-American. It, I don't know. it looks like white people in blackface. Someone said that it looked more like black people in blackface. They were heavily made up, but because of the hair and things like that, you can kind of guess. I honestly don't know. They're not credited, but they were famous cakewalk dancers. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of a problematic history because of also the minstrel show aspect of it, which was white people in blackface doing these dances. Right. And the cakewalk so. itself kind of got co-opted and became kind of maybe not co-opted, maybe just kind of white audience. But yeah. I'm having these weird flashback memories. Like I have, I have not thought about this in 40 years, but mm-hmm. like I, I remember like in grade school, like the, like, you know, the, the seasonal fair or festival or whatever thing, you do a cakewalk. It was just like a board game almost. Yeah, it was like, I remember being young, not knowing what was going on, participating, and I won a cake, and I was so happy, Mm -hmm. but I don't remember, like, any of the... What is a cakewalk? It it was like musical chairs, but with children and cake. In grade school, it's like musical chairs. Right. Mm -hmm. In, like, up to the 1910s, it was very popular in France. It's this kind of, like, four-person double quadrille dance where, like, the guys stand at the corners and the women stand inside... And they do kind of this kind of almost like practically farcical dance. Um, it's very it's very pantomime ish. It's hard, hard, really hard to describe. I'm I'm doing not doing it justice, but it's a very high steppy, pretentious looking dance. So two questions: one, in 1980 something, how do you win a cake? And two, in pre 19 silent film era, how do you win a cake? Like, what are the rules? Well, I can't go into them. There are rules on how this dance is judged. I mean, every dance is judged really by the audience, and it wasn't necessarily a contest. It might have just been a dance in this style, which is really kind of energetic and hmm. couplesy and like, it didn't have to be with cake in it. There was a cake in mine. Well, there was a cake at your school, for sure. That was just like, I think that was just like advancing musical chair style. Yeah, hmm. it, was, it was like bingo, but in a circle and walking. <laughs> I I feel like the cakewalk as a musical style kind of it became and merged with ragtime, and it was kind of just a a step that was incorporated into the ragtime world. Um, no one knows what music was played over Millet's. Hmm. At least no one that's commenting on the internet knows this. But um, hmm. I'm going to play a little clip from Scott Joplin's Swipesy Cakewalk, which is really perky and syncopated and kind of fun and not Russian. Okay. And not Russian. Not at all. Also known as Rotary Bingo. <laughs> There's also a car, uh, like an amusement park ride. Like a board, you know, like beach, beach boardwalk, like in Britain, ride that was just kind of like moving sidewalks. It was called a cakewalk and it was a moving side, like you'd you'd have two moving sidewalks in a circle and you'd sort of walk in different directions and they would kind of go up and down. I did not know. Yeah. Lots of stuff, man. The world's full of stuff. So another thing that was stupidly exciting for me, and I'm sure that everybody's going to get on the bandwagon of how much joy and Joie de vie this brings to them, uh, the Thompson Folklore Index. Oh, yes. And I'm sure that we'll talk about this at some point repeatedly because it's folklore. But mm-hmm. 
there are two chunks that are particularly relevant today. And one is category G for ogres. Mm-hmm. Um, subcategory 303, the devil. Mm-hmm. Subcategory 10, allies of the devil. Mm-hmm. Subcategory f- G30314, dancers as followers of the devil. <laughs> what? Does this, does this spell something when typed into a calculator? G- no, G30314? The Thompson Folk Index is this, like mathematically subdivided branch or listing of like every folk motif known by Thompson and friends in kind of the subdivided way. So you kind of like plot out things, numbers, sometimes get some sense for how stories are connected, but it may just also be an academic exercise. I don't really know. I'm not a folklorist. Um, but 303-10-401, the devil haunts dance halls is going to be big today. Sounds Baptist. 303-1043, Devil Teaches a Dance-Loving Maid to Dance. G-303-1044, The Devil Appears to a Girl Who Wants an Escort for a Dance. That is a major one today, and a major one in Texas, because The Devil in the Dance Hall is a distinctly Texas-slash-south-of-the-border uh, myth. Oh, in our Urban Legends episode. Yes. The, the Devil Appeared in a club in san antonio yep mm-hmm. yeah um but along with the motif of the devil and his allies the dancers which i think is, is informing today also category q rewards and punishments category 386 dancing is punished uh category so q 386 one the devil punishes a girl who loves to dance super exciting i know but also this really amused me vastly category a for mythological motifs 671 and really 670 through 690 is all of the tropes related to hell as a location. Oh, wow. And yeah, we've got hell confused with fairyland, the doorkeeper of hell, A671, 23, tree in hell made of living heads of the dead. What? Wolves in hell, wells in hell, A671, 6, beings born in hell have long bodies and cling with long nails to walls. <laughs> it's a Buddhist myth. Charon turns up in 672, Dogs in Hell, Cock of Hell. I wonder what that is. Uh, Alarm clock. Okay. And then it kind of goes on to underworld myths in the late 680s. But like a lot of the motifs that, well, we could just kind of model a podcast off of this for quite some time. I just oh, well, let's do it. There's okay. A, is there, there's an online version, right? Yeah. Yeah. We'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Okay. We'll have a quiz later. Anyway, so I got very excited over that while researching The Devil Loves to Dance. And that kind of took me to or came from the Devil and the Dance Hall folklore story. Yeah, this is a very Texas story, so says the internet. It really is. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it turns up in other places. It turns up in Canada, and there's some variations, I think, in Nova Scotia, Ireland even. But fundamentally, the story is some variation of there's a rebellious young girl probably a teenager, probably an early teenager, who was forbidden by her parents to dance, and so she really wants to dance. So she goes to the club and meets this tall, dark stranger, looks down, notices there's something deeply messed up with his feet, and then it's the devil, and either the devil runs into the bathroom and disappears in a puff of brimstone smoke, which is always my excuse, (laughs) or the devil uh, flies out the window with her, or just tears her up, or whatever, or she, she... sees him, passes out, goes insane, and ends up in the asylum for the rest of her life. But regardless, this is kind of a obey your parents or else, 
girls should be faithful, pious, and obedient sort of moral story. The mother is often a laundress, one who makes clean things that are soiled. But it did turn up in 1957 in the El Camaroncito Club in San Antonio. The tall, dark stranger came in. He has all the right moves. Someone notices he had chicken feet. And then he, they start to scream and pray, and he jumps into the men's room. And that's where the smell of sulfur kind of comes up from there. Mm-hmm. Just like a real <laughs> men's room. <laughs> I was going to say, like, was it really the devil? <laughs> I mean... Yeah, or could it just mean, you know, light a match sort of thing? Uh-huh. There's a an, another version from the south southwestern U.S. where uh, a musician kind of sees the devil's feet and then changes the music from a waltz or whatever to church hymns, and then the devil freaks out, jump, grabs a girl, and jumps out the window, and her body is found in the grass. A lot of my information from this came from a really neat article in the Constellations Journal by, called "Dancing with the Devil Revisited" by Marlene Galvan, which kind of traces the cultural networks this myth kind of flows along in the Southwest. She mentioned a really neat. Uh, she mentioned a poem by Amalia Ortiz, "The Devil at the Dance," which kind of catches both the rebellion and also the respect for the parents at the same time. Mm-hmm. Her papa told her never to look down. A good dancer engages her partner's gaze or trustfully rests an ear on a strong shoulder. So by the time she finally noticed the hoof, the claw, tearing up the floor where shiny boots should be, it was too late. She was already in love. <laughs> oh, I like that a lot. <laughs> it was too late. So I asked about devil hell dance motif stuff on Twitter, and I got a neat response from Jürgen Hubert. Uh, Hi, Jürgen. Hand- Hi, Jürgen, whose handle is uh, Franconian Exile, F-R-A-N-C-O-N-I-A-N-E-X-I-L-E. And he has a Patreon channel called Sunken Castle's Evil Poodles. <laughs> where, where he engages in open source translation of German folktales. Wow. Apparently, okay. the black dog is oftentimes a poodle. Did not know no. this. No. Really? Truth. Truth. Wow. In German myth, in German stories. So he mentioned a story called The Devil Fetches the Bride, um, which is great, like total horror movie trope all over the place. Two young lovers near Walkington made a very dumb engagement vow. Whichever one of them broke the vow and married someone else would be torn apart by the devil. Mm-hmm. Why would you ever mm-hmm. make that vow? Anyway, of course, the bride married someone else, and during the reception, a handsome huntsman turns up, and it's traditional dance with the bride three times. And then stole her, ran up a nearby mountain, and they only found scraps of her dress and her garland. So, so when I when I read that, I was wondering about the three times. Does every guest get to dance with the bride three times or only huntsmen? Maybe like the outside stranger type person comes. Or maybe <laughs> the guy that's hotter than the groom gets to dance with her three times. I don't know. That poor woman. <laughs> her feet must be so tired. <laughs> oh, being forced to dance with. Randos. <laughs> so the, another big devil slash hell slash dance story is the red shoes, Ooh. which I really enjoyed going on a very deep dive on. This there story. was a lot more yes. to the red shoes than I was expecting. Yes. Mm-hmm. Shall I tell the story now? Is yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is translated from the English translated from Hans Christian Andersen. The red shoes. 
Once there was a little girl named Karen, who was so poor that she went barefoot in the summer, and in the winter she had to wear zips instead of Adidas. <laughs> but the batshit crazy shoemaker down the road made her some shoes out of some red sofa cushions, so they were at least warm. <laughs> she wore them for the very first time when her mother was buried, because it's that kind of story. Oh. Now, no one wears red sofa cushions to a funeral, at least not after Labor Day, but she no. didn't have anything else. And it was cold in the, in the cemetery. So Did cold. they still have the little piping, the little ridge of piping, like, on them, like... Yeah, and the do not remove tag, that was poking oh. out of each heel. Yeah. So an old, rich, judgmental lady saw her schlepping after the funeral wagon and was felt very sorry for her, and adopted her. Karen thought it was her amazing footwear that sealed the deal, mm-hmm. because even at that age, Karen was all about the shoes. Yeah. The old lady had the sofa shoes burned, which objectively was the right thing to do. Oh. And she bought her some really nice clothes... And everybody said she was pretty, but when Karen looked in the mirror, she knew she was smoking hot. And this begins a complicated, years-long red shoe fetish. When she goes to get shoes made for her confirmation, she gets a pair of sexy red thigh-high heel boots with 16 lace holes. And she wears them to church and rubs her legs together so the leather squeaks instead of listening to the sermon. And she fantasizes about going to the confessional and saying, Unlace me, Father, for I have sinned. (laughs) And she replaces every 16th word in the Lord's Prayer with boots. Thy will be boots, as it is in heaven. Give us the daily daily boots, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the boots forever. Amen. Boots. Eventually, her guardian was about to die, of course, but she decided to do it on the same night as Lace and Leather Night at the Bladictorian. Rude. Yes, and I think Karen made the right decision and went out with this guy named Klaus in a long frock coat. Yeah. And they started dancing, and when they started playing Bella Lugosi's Dead, it went on forever, and she couldn't stop dancing. And she danced down the street and through the woods and into Starbucks, and she danced in a graveyard, but the cemeteries had this strong no-dancing policy. And this really nice angel who was hanging out there said she had to dance until she was a skeleton because God wanted her to be a bad example. Dance, I say! She tried to go to the church to repent, but that didn't work because God is kind of a jerk in these stories. Yeah, and she would have made a lot of noise with a little... Yeah, squeaky leathers, yeah. Mm-hmm. So some people say that she made her way to the executioner's house and begged him to help her with his axe. And he did... And the shoes danced away with her amputated feet, which is horrible on a few levels because they were really awesome boots. Yeah. Other people said she danced herself to bones, and now she goes to knock on the door of vain and nasty little children to scare them. But the goths didn't get it, and they just thought it was kind of hot, so she doesn't visit the goths anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is just like the Velveteen Rabbit. But with boots? Except boots. I think it's nothing like the Velveteen Rabbit, but, but... But there are boots. There are boots. Yeah, that's true. In that sense, they are similar stories. Yeah. <laughs> that there either mm-hmm. are or aren't boots. Boots make you real. Yes. <laughs> and I love the Kate Bush version of this song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The video was just amazing. It shows kind of her making this deal with this sort of fae vampiric woman who gives her the shoes. And then she goes to dance until her legs are going to fall off. And there's like this scene of her like tripping through hell with all these demons kind of lounging around her and singing skeletons and things like that. It's just such a good danceable song and really well done. These boots are going to do a kind of voodoo. They're going to make her dance until her legs fall off. Call a doctor, call a priest. They're going to whip her up like a helicopter. Satan looks very David Lynchy and dances with this column of rainbow fire. It's so neat. Rainbow fire. Yeah. Kate Bush is so subtle. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. (laughs) You you really have to work to read between the lines. I know. It's got this kind of Bollywood edge to it, which is kind of interesting, because she opens with like quarter tonal singing. Mm -hmm. Kind of the pageantry also has some elements of that in it, too, which is just, if you like Bollywood, I think you might enjoy this, too. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. I do, I do like both of those things. Bali and wood. So, besides being an awesome example of Q3D64101, this has some really neat notes of like addiction and compulsion and mm-hmm. betraying your religious orders and things like that. But she's also a lost orphan, and her self-appointed guardian is like this higher-class person that's fobbing her mores onto the girl. Oh, we're back to the original Red Shoes, not Kate Bush. <laughs> well, we're kind of going all over the place. <laughs> it could might it, it might apply to Kate Bush as well. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know her life. Yeah. I, I enjoyed the TV tropes read on this one. It has the motif "died happily ever after," <laughs> which is an extremely Hans Christian Andersen motif. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. I think isn't there one version of yeah? There's one. You're right. You're right. You you did tell the story where she doesn't actually die from losing her feet, but she becomes a living example of how horrible vanity is. Right, and in one version of that version, the feet and shoes show up later on just to remind her <laughs> of how bad That's she right. is. Hey, remember us? <laughs> but she does successfully <laughs> repent, and she goes into into heaven. And the story specifies where nobody ever talked about the red shoes. <laughs> She was probably 13 or 14 when this story started because it was at First Communion. Oh. So, yeah. Shouldn't she have been married by then? <laughs> what was the other story about the... Oh, Little Red Riding Hood. Also very kind of early teenage red um, sin mm-hmm. imagery there. Yes. Yeah, I love Hans Christian Andersen's stories and grim, grim fairy tales as well. So one thing which actually clicked with me with Red Shoes was there was a song which I've liked for a while. And, it, you know, so this is it's Pixie Lot. What do you take me for? Mm-hmm. And it specifically goes like this. Yes, we turn heads like the exorcist. These red bottoms on our feet looking devilish. We take it to the next level. So effortless. I'm tired of you kicking the day. I just want the death. And I'm like, and, and Pusha T is like, these red bottoms on our shoes make us devilish. And I was like, okay, sure, whatever. You know, cute lyrics. But no, like, it suddenly makes sense. All things clear. Yeah. So thank you, Ms. Lott. Thank you. And Mr. T. What? His his name is Pusha T. Oh, okay. Right. Does make sense. Gotcha. Um, When there's something about, like, ecclesiastical shoes and the color red yeah yeah red shoes were used as a punishment slash faith offering for people who were inflicted with the dancing plague in the like the 1500s okay and the dancing plague um the other saint v is here saint vitus (laughs) the only saint v plague is this distinctly west german phenomenon of people who 
combined like compulsive dancing and religious mania in different ways. Huzzah! Yeah. So, were they like okay? So, so I've heard about two of these dance plagues, at least two. Right, there was one in the 14th century that was in. They're both in Germany, right? Yeah, that's that's kind of Saint Vitus's dance central. Okay, and so did they spring from like celebrations of Saint Saint Vitus or is it Vitus or Vitus? Yes, I I, I said Vitus. Yeah, I forgot about the one in, but they're both in Germany. The thirteen seventy four one was believed to be like an like a social contagion, or no, that was the one that was supposed to be ergot poisoning, right? Or right, both. right, right. I've heard ergot poisoning being one of the links, one of the things that links all this together. And ergot poisoning is called Saint Vitus's dance, I think specifically. One of the stories I heard was that St. Vitus's dance slash ergot poisoning was part of the backdrop of the Pied Piper of Hamlin story, where he leads oh, all right, the children right. dancing away from the the, the, the village. And mm-hmm. so I think there's this kind of between that associating dancing with St. Vitus somehow and ergot poisoning and this like mythic thread of dance and of, 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 I don't know, strangely forced dancing, um, kind of, maybe that's why Germany is like the central to this thing, because like maybe Hamlin ground zero and kind of spreading out from there. I think this requires much more research than we actually did, but regardless, it's, it's safe to say that a lot of the dancing compulsion stories, including red shoes come from this region. Well, that, um, the thing about, the Pied Piper that came from the Everything Everywhere podcast. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. So the the one in the 14th century came from, it happened in um, Aachen, Germany. And supposedly the contagion uh, spread as far as Madagascar. Wow. That's quite a range. not near Germany yeah. at all. No. So it continued for days and in some cases weeks and months. Some people reportedly danced until they collapsed um, from exhaustion or even died from heart attacks and strokes and broken bones. <laughs> and oh. it seemed like they were hallucinating and losing their senses. Um, and it could be that it's also could be a social contagion. But there was some discussion in that podcast, too, of like, was it a thing that people decided to do, like some kind of really, you know, poorly thought out flash mob flash mob situation. yes <laughs> or you know and then it just became like the world's worst uh you know uh dance marathon um but yeah so that's also equated with uh the um neurological disorder that is called saint Vitus dance too because of the jerking uncontrollably mm. but that's what led to the the, the poisoning hypothesis that or not poisoning hypothesis Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is also interesting. There's a concept called pluralistic ignorance that's mentioned in this ABC News article, which is described as, I would stop, but I don't see anybody else stopping. <laughs> <laughs> what a, what a, yes, yes, thank you. Now I have a word for it. Yeah, so it's kind of like, 
people have been people have been dumb for centuries <laughs> is pretty much what he's saying there. But yeah, and the later one was similar because it also had this incredibly wide spread too. This is Strasbourg, maybe. Yeah, that's that's I think one of the big ones. And that's the one where we have priests giving away red shoes to people as like votive mm-hmm. ideas. And so this is where Terrentism comes in too, oh. that that we were talking about with our our cocktail. But yeah, so the Strasbourg one um, affecting thousands of people across several centuries. Oh, so it's just various dance manias. And so there was a thought that music would also cure. So they would they play music to cure the dancers from dancing. Right, right, right. Guys, I can't stop dancing. Listen to this sick yeah. tune. Um, there's a lot of electronica that will do that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, and then so the bass dropped. So music and dance were used to try to cure the dance plague and red shoes. And the red shoes kind of symbolized um, flagellation, the wounds of crucifixion, that sort of thing. Delightful. Mm. It disguised the blisters on your feet. Well, that too. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. I feel like every red pair of shoes I've had have caused blisters. Coincidence? (laughs) So I want to wrap up this episode with what kind of brought me to it in the first place, which is Orpheus's Gallop. Sweet. This is uh, from 1858 to 1878 opera, the Orphe, Orphe a Inferre. Would it be Orphe? Or it might be Orphe a Inferre, which is very hard to say, and that might be the point, which appeared first as an opera bouffon in 1856, which is definitions. That's a farcical uh, comedy opera with an Italianate plot. And I don't know what Italianate means, so I looked that up, and that means having low-pitched roofs, imposing cornices, and matulated signorial towers. I thought that was strawberry, vanilla, and chocolate in the same... No, that's Neapolitan. Oh. Hmm. So Italianate, gotcha. Right. Yeah. Towers, so, low... low. Like columns. Yeah, and loggia to walk down, that sort of thing. Yes, I don't know exactly. how this applies to opera, but it does. <laughs> But by 1874, it had moved into being an opera fairy, which is a comical-ish opera that's more heavily leaning on fantasy and things like that. And um, so the bouffant is kind of like a like satire, is it? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Would buffoon. you say that was, I would say, cognate with buffoon? It is, in fact, identical to buffoon. Except with a T on the end. So no, there's no, no, she made stuff. that up. So bouffant, bouffant. Like, I was, I was trying to equate the hairstyle... Oh, with I think a, I think this is a different direction, a different kind oh. of buffoon. Yes, okay. yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So this entire thing is a spoof of Orpheus and Eurydice, but it's like a, a really like cynical version. Uh, Orpheus is a violin teacher. He's very happy to see his wife carried away by Pluto because he hates her and she hates him. He actually sets up a plot where she's going to die so that Pluto gets her. And her kind of mental response is, like I said earlier, death's not so bad when the god of death is in love with you. Ah. One kind of funny bit about this is, you know how the Greek, this is a Greek story ultimately. Mm -hmm. And there's always the Greek chorus. There is a Greek chorus in here, sort of, but it's public opinion, the guardian of morality. And he rather specifically uh, says that he's like a Greek chorus, but instead of just commenting on the play, 
he's going to interfere to make sure there's a high moral tone. <laughs> this this is some of that fourth wall breaking, isn't it? It is a bit. It is a bit. It's a comedy uh-huh. opera. Hmm. So, so there's sort a bit... of like our town, but with a judgy narrator. Yeah. So there's a big catty gossip scene on Olympus, then it moves downstairs to the sticks, and a couple of people, including Zeus, are trying to make well, Eurydice has already gotten bored with uh Pluto because he's the kind of the stodgy god of the dead, and she's starting to fall for Bacchus, who's a lot more of a party guy. Jim Bacchus? Jim Bacchus, yes, mm-hmm. that one. James so he's at work. James T. Bacchus. Uh so Zeus is going to set up something where she kind of breaks it, breaks it up with Hades, and they need to set up a dance to do it. Now, in the earlier version, 1956, there's this kind of uh, minuet thing, which is kind of a little mincing dance. It's very formalized and kind of dull, and the music is very boring. Mm-hmm. But later on, uh, Orpheus's gallop gets added to it. Now, this one is... The can can. Yeah. So yeah, that became the can can, and then the Moulin Rouge and Folies Berger adopted it as their can can, and it kind of wiped out earlier, slightly more sedate versions of the can can with this kind of wild bacchanalian rave, and this is kind. So the can can is a song sung by the gods dancing on the banks of hell. Um, the lyrics are pretty much, um, let's dance the infernal dance. We'll give a signal with the infernal gallop, long live the ball, which is not, it kind of loses something in translation. It's very simple lyrics. But the Boston Opera Company has a version that they did where the can-can goes with the lyrics. We don't want to dance the dirges. We've got fiery urges. Everything is swell, and we all enjoy the sulfur smell. Dancing one and all, <laughs> come gallop to our call. We gods will have a merry, very merry ball. And it's a lot of fun. They're dancing around in kind of 20s garb and doing a lot of, like, kind of Charleston kicks and things like that. It's so cute. Um, wow. But the Dublin Youth Opera Company did a version from the 1970s. It's sort of got this glam goth 70s thing, and it's got a lot more pelvic thrusts. Oh, I have to see that Wait, one. the... Dublin Youth Choir has more pelvic thrusts? Did I? The Dublin Youth Opera Company, 1970, yeah, did a 70s version. It's got a lot of pelvic thrust. It kind of feels like a disco time warp can can. And <laughs> that version, which I will link to, also has the minuet scene as well, but with some really good face offs between various gods and things like that. Are there dance battles? Like. A little. A little uh-huh. of like people kind of get face to face and spin around each other like angry chickens. Uh, oh, I love that. Yeah. There's a couple of versions that have the couple of productions that have like the first part and the second part of this one. But it's kind of neat that the can can was added to the end of this after uh, the 1870s when Offenbach, the composer, was not composing anymore. I think he died. He was decomposing. Yeah, he was. Yes, that. Yeah, Jacques, ah. Jacques Offenbach. Uh, I think he died in the 70s, and then this was added after the minuet scene to kind of liven it up, and the gods kind of embrace it as like we don't want that we want to party and revel then after the scene Eurydice breaks it off with Pluto <laughs> and goes off with um, Goofy? Virgil no Bacchus 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 oh right Jim Bacchus James Bacchus so right she kind of becomes a Mayanid or a Bacante like the ragey fury of hell those are uh, Bacchus's servants it's kind of this tied as underworld demon and in another version she gets a reprise at the end where she says 
Bacchus, my flighty soul, which could be doing with happiness on earth, aspires to you, divine Bacchus. Greet the priestess, whose voice will endlessly sing the intoxication to your chosen ones. But that's the Can-Can song again. Ah, really neat story. Let's party forever in hell. Throw some horns. Yeah, let's, let's do it. Uh-huh. Worm tram. <laughs> if you were curious, uh, Foley's Berger mm-hmm. is the Follies of the Shepherdess. Oh, okay. And Moulin Rouge is like the red, the red sheep, mill, right? The red mill. Yeah. Yes. And that's the, the, the windmill with the oh. red veins. Right. 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 Gotcha. Yeah. And I think we, we covered all my high points. And low well, points. Well, thank yes. you so much for hell dancing with us this week. We're so glad you're here. And we have something new for you to come and visit if you so wish. And that is our Instagram. Curated by yes. none other than. Bure. <laughs> I was going to say VUCA, but they're very similar demons. There, there's some job sharing happening between VUCA and Boer. So, you know, that's just the way things, it's the gig economy. But, uh, but yes, yeah, so Instagram, you can find us at dispatchist underscore podcast. You can both like and subscribe. So, yes, please follow us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Until then, we will see you in hell. <gasps> Bye-bye! This podcast is copyright 2021 by The Dispatchist and its Creative Commons. You're welcome to reuse with attribution. Look for us on your favorite podcast app. Say hi to us on Twitter or Gmail at The Dispatchist, no spaces. Check out our website, dispatch.ist, for more episodes, show notes, and a variety of hellish resources. We've got fiery urges.